Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 28th, 2024, leap year. One more day of February, and then we're on to March, and it's Oscar season, a uh, strong year this year for the Oscars. It's in a couple of weeks. Uh, and of course, the movie that everyone continues to talk about and suggests should win the best uh, movie of the year is Oppenheimer. The Guardian believes it's the best film of the year. Uh, most of the bookmakers and odds makers are predicting that uh, Oppenheimer is poised to have uh, what pundits call a big night at the Oscars in a couple of weeks. It's already won as a movie, the Producers Guild Award. Uh, it's an interesting film. I actually just traveled back from uh, Washington, D.C. yesterday, and everyone on the plane was watching it. And I wonder whether, in a way, it's become popular and people are comfortable with it. Oscars, of course, a very mainstream thing because it presents nuclear power and nuclear weapons as a closed thing, as something historical. Uh, but of course, nuclear weapons are anything but historical. They continue to threaten the future of the world. As my guest today, um, Sarah Scholes, a Colorado-based science reporter, journalist, has uh, analyzed and shown in an important new book, Countdown, the blinding future of nuclear weapons rather than the past of nuclear weapons. Sarah is focusing on its future and she is joining us from Colorado today. Sarah, do you think, um, I assume you've seen Oppenheimer, do you think that people are comfortable with it because it's presented as kind of dead history? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with its popularity. And I also think, uh, you know, the movie is a little bit removed from the human effects of actually using nuclear weapons, which can also make people more comfortable if they're not seeing hundreds of thousands of other people dying. But yeah, Oppenheimer presents presents the nuclear project as, as safely in the past and as something that a really limited group of people accomplished when really it's it's a big part of our world now and still involves thousands of people today. Well, actually, I mean, it involves all of us today when you get right down to it. So you're not just a, a historian of nuclear weapons, but a, a futurist as well. Um, is it an accurate film, do you think? Does it deal with the origins of uh, the American nuclear bomb fairly or is it biased in some way? Um, I mean, to my understanding of Oppenheimer as a person in his trial and and the way the Manhattan Project played out, uh, it's accurate. I would say that the biases that I've I've seen are that you know it is a movie about this one man who was the the head of this part of the Manhattan Project, and um, you know not about other facilities that worked on it or the effects on you know the the people of Japan or even the people of New Mexico who who were affected by, um, for instance, the the trend test of the first nuclear weapon it deals as you suggest with the the moral questions around the development of the bomb particularly associated with oppenheimer and as you say his elite group of uh physicists of, of nuclear scientists and albert einstein and other scientific notables is that the right way i mean your book kind of takes a different angle looking at today's workers who aren't quite as glamorous 
or as intellectually or academically distinguished as Oppenheimer and Einstein? Um, is that simply because the technology now is mainstream? Uh, or, or could there be another narrative uh, of a more democratic way of thinking about even the origins of the bomb? Yeah, I mean, I think that my book, you know, the, the nuclear weapons complex of today involves a number of people who are just kind of they're doing their daily jobs and there aren't there isn't any you know one single hero or villain of the story either either way and i think that that's partly a function of how science has progressed since the 1940s like you you, you did used to have uh people who made discoveries kind of on their own or in a more one person sort of way. And everything is kind of interdisciplinary and involves a large team of scientists now. But I think, you know, I think the figure for the number of people who worked on the Manhattan Project was around or, or more than 100,000 people across the country. So I think there is also a, a more democratic way that you could present the way that even that first project played out. Perhaps a book, Sarah, by you or somebody else. <laughs> um, yeah. In terms of the technology, I've often wondered about this. One of the central themes in Oppenheimer is the disagreement between Oppenheimer and Edward Teller about developing the technology, whether to develop the thermonuclear weapon, which Oppenheimer was uncomfortable with. Teller, Hungarian-based physicist or a Hungarian-born physicist, was more enthusiastic, certainly someone violently hostile to the Soviet Union. How much has nuclear technology developed since not just Oppenheimer's bomb, but Teller's thermonuclear bomb? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the details of the specifics of what's new about nuclear weapons are classified. So I don't, I don't know that I can speak to all the technical specifications that are in there. But I mean, the basic physics of how our nuclear weapons work are not very different from, from uh, the thermonuclear bomb that, that Teller and his team um, helped develop. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a core in the center that uh, begins fission, the splitting of atoms that then sets off a fusion reaction of um, even more energy. And that's, I mean, that's essentially the same thing that happens in our modern nuclear weapons today, even if some of their, their components are different in ways that uh, we don't totally have access to. Well, you probably have more access, certainly intellectually than others. Is there then no kind of Moore's law when it comes to nuclear technology, when we compare even the iPhones we carry around in our pockets to the supercomputers of the 70s or 80s, uh, the technology has dramatically become more powerful. Is that not true of nuclear weapons? Uh, I don't know that anyone has tried to enact a Moore's law of, of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, I, they... I'm not suggesting they should, but given, given the power of computers these days, one would have guessed that the Americans or the Russians or the Chinese would have developed a single bomb, for example, that could destroy the entire world, given, mm -hmm. given how much technology in other spheres has progressed over the last 70 or 80 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, the kind of the fundamental problem with going for something like that is that for nuclear deterrence to work, which is this idea that, you know, I have a bomb, you have a bomb, you won't attack me because I could retaliate against you with my bomb. Um, that relies on nuclear weapons being usable and for people to believe that you would be 
willing to use them. And if you have a bomb that just automatically destroys the world on its own or even a significant portion of it, um, it's harder for people to believe, I think, that that you would actually yeah. well, push, push the button. Terrorists mm -hmm. might, certain kinds of terrorists mm -hmm. might like at least the threat of that kind of bomb. So, Sarah, is the history of nuclear weapons really since Oppenheimer and Teller, those elite scientists who developed the bomb in the first place, is it about its routinization, the bureaucratization of the military industrial nuclear complex? I mean, I think that that is a big part of the story after after the Manhattan Project ended, uh, you know, we had kind of set up this system of what uh, what are called national labs, um, which are a lot of them nuclear weapons labs. And, um, you know, th there is a big infrastructure involved in that and a lot of contractors involved in that. And then also on the, the Department of Defense side, which is uh, in charge of the missiles and, you know, the submarines and the delivery systems for nuclear weapons. There's also the military and the industrial side of that. So it's kind of just grown in, in that kind of scope ever since. And then tell me more about the book. It's a narrative of the, not just the future, but the present of, of nuclear weapons. How did you get access to some of the stuff that you write about? Yeah, um, honestly, I um, essentially I just asked. Um, I had been visiting the nuclear weapons labs for a couple of years, and I first went and learned about their basic science that they do and, you know, physics or climate change or pandemic modeling or things like that, that all um, the science of that actually has some relevance to to nuclear weapons in, in a weird way. Um, and so I kind of just, you know, established myself with the labs, established that I wouldn't get the, you know, the actual science wrong of what they were doing. And then I said, you know, now I'm really interested in what what you do that most of your money goes to and most of your focus is, which is nuclear weapons. And then, you know, there were a lot of uh, discussions uh, and background checks for me to be able to interview people um, and go to the labs. But um, I think, you know, right now, nuclear weapons are getting uh, more funding than they have in the past. And I think that the labs in some sense have kind of a vested interest in um, op opening the curtain a little bit more than they have um, in, in the past. So what did you find? What have you found that um, will perhaps shock people, make them worried, or perhaps reassure them about the future of nuclear weapons, which hopefully won't be used by anybody? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think on the, on the reassuring side um, is that, that all of these labs and also you know, institutions outside of them are working on global security and non-proliferation. So trying to make sure that there are, you know, not more nuclear weapons than they think, than we think there are, and that they're not spreading, making sure people are obeying treaties, like our agreement not to test nuclear weapons or um, develop more nuclear weapons material than everyone has agreed to. And so there's a lot of very smart people working on those problems, weirdly at the same place where nuclear weapons are, um, you know, designed and upgraded um, and things like that. Um, but I think, you know, what, uh, on the scary side, what scared me is, you know, normally when you're talking to experts about something, um, 
they will tell you that what you see in the news or what you're worried about is a little hyped up um, and you need to worry about it a little less than you thought. You don't need to be quite as afraid. But I would say that the people working on nuclear weapons are equally, if not more, uh, afraid and cautious of some kind of nuclear incident happening in the happening in the not too distant future. And I think anytime you have experts who are also worried, that's that makes things even more worrisome. Yeah, it is, of course. It goes without saying it's worrying. You wrote an interesting piece last August in The Times suggesting that nuclear war has, has returned to the realm of dinner table conversation, weighing on the minds of the public more than it has in a generation. Uh, but nuclear technology hasn't returned to the, the dinner table, has it? It's more the, the threat of war, perhaps, terrorism, the, the growing conflict between the US and China and Russia. Right, right. Yeah, nuclear weapons kind of exist as uh, I think one one scholar said to me, not, not so much as objects, but as this kind of abstract threat, because we haven't used them um, since the 1940s and, and no one has, but they're kind of this looming threat in the background all the time. And so they're not so much objects as abstractions. And so I think that abstraction is definitely, I think, more, more on people's minds than it has been in the recent past. You know, during the Cold War, I think it it was more um, more felt just because there there were these moments of of large tension between the countries that did have nuclear weapons, and you know we're sort of back in a similar situation, particularly with the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and so I think it's uh, it's something that's on people's people's minds, and uh, like you mentioned, terrorism also terrorism is is. Um, on the minds of the people working on non-proliferation who try to stop, you know, nuclear smuggling and the radiological black market and uh, things like that. And, you know, no one has ever used a dirty bomb, but um, everyone is kind of constantly a little bit concerned about it. You mentioned the return to the dinner table, of course, in the past, the fear of nuclear war um, dominated the dinner table, particularly around the, the the Cuban Missile Crisis. You mentioned Ukraine and Putin's threat. Sometimes it's hard to tell how serious he was to use nuclear weapons. Are there any equivalents between the tensions, the global tensions, the geopolitical tensions of the 2020s and the kind of tensions that created the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime there are countries that have nuclear weapons who are making moves of any sort that another country with nuclear weapons doesn't like then you you do kind of have this this cold conflict going on where um, you know Russia's nuclear weapons for instance right now are I think, influencing the actions of other countries in that no one wants to be the one who uh, you know incites World War three or be or begins the part of the conflict that becomes nuclear. And so I think, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, it, it required a lot of trying to read each other's minds, countries trying to read each other's minds. And I think that that is still going on right now. What What is everyone's motivations? What do they want? How are they going to act? And that's always kind of opaque when you're outside the, the leadership of another country. Well, Sarah Skull's uh, book, Countdown, is anything but opaque. It appears 
uh, or it, it reveals perhaps or gets beyond the opaqueness of the nuclear missile industry in the United States. It's called The Blinding Future. The book is called Countdown, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. Um, when it comes to clarity, I'm thrilled that this show is sponsored by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Doesn't deal much with nuclear weapons, but with many other issues. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Sarah skulls to talk more about nuclear weapons and whether or not we should be fearful of the future so don't go away anyone beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Sarah Scholes, the author of an important new book, Countdown, um, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. Sarah, you write extensively on technology, and you've written some interesting stuff about how the military is betting big on AI. How much is AI, and I use this word carefully, infiltrating nuclear technology and nuclear weapons? I think that, you know, in terms of being incorporated into things like nuclear launch protocols and, you know, the, the process by which a nuclear weapon would be launched, um, you know, that's uh, to my knowledge, you know, not not part of the the process. So we're not talking about that. But uh, I think on the early warning and intelligence analysis side, it's at the, it's at least part of conversations of you know taking satellite images or other sorts of intelligence and trying to analyze them. I think people are interested in in using AI to understand you know what other countries are doing in a, in a nuclear manner. Um, and uh, but the the biggest place that I saw it actually was in in a program called Stockpile Stewardship, which is uh, basically you know our nuclear weapons are fairly aged and um, they need to be stewarded into the future. The thinking goes to make sure that they are uh, safe and secure and reliable is the phrase that people like to use, and that that involves really understanding the physics of what's going on um, inside of them and what would go on if one were launched. And um, we don't test them anymore, so that involves supercomputer simulations and, and small experiments. And um, uh, I know that uh, the National Nuclear Security Administration is interested in doing some testing on using artificial intelligence to help with some of those simulations to try to understand the weapons better. So, you know, operationally, not so much, but on the back end of, of doing the, the science behind them, I think it's it's more in the works. Some people will be chilled by this association of AI and nuclear weapons. What chills you most? What keeps you up at night in terms of researching this book and what you found? I think what uh, what keeps me up at night is is not so much the idea of a fully uh, conscious and understandable start to a nuclear war, like a very clear, you know, another country launches a nuclear weapon and we launch one back in response. But um, that kind of scenario arising from a misunderstanding, um, you know, bad intelligence or a mistake of some sort. And I think, you know, in 
in history, there have been situations like that where, and we have so far avoided nuclear disaster, but I think that, you know, the longer you avoid something, in some ways, the more likely it becomes because you're, you're just putting yourself in more situations of that sort. So I think if I had to pick one uh, nuclear catastrophe that's scary, that would be mine. As that famous bumper sticker in Berkeley said, one nuclear weapon can ruin your day and, and everybody's day. Um, what about the politics of all this and the, the need for international regulation? Oppenheimer, one of the, the most memorable scenes in Oppenheimer was the one between Harry Truman and Oppenheimer, where Oppenheimer wanted to give Truman some advice on international regulation, and Truman wasn't particularly happy. What conclusions did you come to in Countdown about the need for more international regulation of the industry? Not just of the industry, uh, but of course of relations between nuclear powers. Yeah, I mean, I think nuclear weapons do have, you know, more international agreements existing than, than some other kinds of weapons. And, you know, rightly so. They are uh, more dangerous than other weapons are. But I think from that scene, uh, the, the general lesson still rings true which is that scientists who work on nuclear weapons um, may have a misplaced assessment of the amount of power that they have in terms of how they're used. Like Oppenheimer and other Manhattan Project scientists had ideas about nuclear policies and the, the people who actually make the policies were not that interested in what they thought and were going to do what they were going to do uh, regardless. I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, Many, many nations have signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which essentially agrees if you don't have nuclear weapons right now, you agree not to acquire them. And the, the countries that do have nuclear weapons um, agree to kind of long-term decrease their reliance on those nuclear weapons. And I think um, right now the, the world doesn't really seem to be moving in that direction. Um, so I would I would be interested in seeing how it can. Um, and there are other things like arms control agreements, um, like the New START Treaty that are not, you know, not um, being in, uh, Russia has withdrawn uh, from that treaty. And so I think get, getting back on the train of having international agreements about, about how many uh, weapons we have and how they're used, I think would be a good start. So the SALT uh, treaties are positive models for how you can get to international agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think I think they have been uh, a good start to, to get countries to willingly agree to to limit their power in some way. I think is uh, an achievement. What about did did you find anything about espionage? Uh, the, the narrative in. Uh, uh, Oppenheimer, of course, is dominated by the notion, the accusation that Oppenheimer might have been a communist spy. There were spies, Klaus Fuchs, for example. Um, is that still an issue in terms of a foreign power or foreign organization infiltrating the American nuclear arms industry? Um, I mean, I'm sure it is a constant worry and something that the uh, the National Nuclear Security Administration tries to guard against. Um, I did not hear or see anything, you know, about active worries about, you know, spying going on 
right now. Um, but you know, the the labs are heavily guarded. There are limitations on um, you know what work foreign nationals can do and where they can be in in the laboratories. And so I think um, it uh, it remains a concern. But uh, I, I don't know if I would be the one who would ever find out if there were more active concerns um, or things going on. But uh, to my knowledge, I didn't see any of that. You mentioned earlier the dirty bomb. Um, what about rogue nations? North Korea, of course, comes to mind, Iran. Uh, smaller countries uh, like Israel already have the bomb, India, Pakistan. Is that something in your conversations with uh, scientists and uh, administrators that they're particularly fearful of? Yeah, I think so, particularly for um, countries like North Korea that remain pretty opaque, not to use that word again, um, to the United States and from the outside in general, who's who's motivations um, and, you know, value systems might be very different from ours. It's hard to play the nuclear mind game um, with countries that are that that different uh, from us. And so I think, you know, in <clears throat> at least in the beginning of the Cold War, when it was just, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union who had nuclear weapons, that's complicated because they're catastrophic weapons. But in the end, it's just two countries with two fairly well understood sets of sets of motivations and and thinking patterns and now there are many more nations um and like you said some of them are a bit a bit rogue and that just really that really complicates things even just having more but also having more different things going on yeah it's like a club which has suddenly closed its door i mean if the israelis have one and the Indians and the Pakistanis have one. Why shouldn't the Saudis or the Iranians have a, have a weapon? Right, and I mean, I think that's that's a question that countries that don't have nuclear weapons sometimes do ask themselves: if 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 these countries that do have nuclear weapons, if they make them feel so safe and like they can deter conflict, why shouldn't we have the same thing? Is there any possibility in the future? You the, the the subtitle of your book is about the nuclear future. Is it possible, Sarah, that in the future? We will we, we we can get rid of nuclear weapons. Can they be destroyed without actually blowing anyone up? I think that I mean I think that's a, a future that a lot of people, uh, obviously outside the the nuclear complex, but also within the nuclear complex, would like to move toward. I do think that is the kind of thing that for sure requires international agreements. Um, you know, it's not like the United States or Russia or India or anyone would just give up their nuclear weapons unilaterally, um, you know, lest they be on the, the wrong side of deterrence. Um, but there, there are organizations like one called Global Zero that kind of have stepwise plans for how, how you could eliminate nuclear weapons without kind of taking a global order out of, out of balance. And that, that does involve things like arms control, like, like agreeing that you will decrease your stockpile, agreeing that you will not use nuclear weapons first without being attacked in some way, um, and then you know verification that all of that is is true. And so I think there are plans. Um, it just kind of re requires the will of all of the countries who would have to agree to that. Which um, I don't see that happening in the near near future, but um, you know maybe the longer term future.
And is there any credibility to the the mad argument, the mutually assured destruction argument that the existence of these weapons has actually reduced the chances of or eliminated the possibility of a war between the superpowers, between the United States and China and Russia? I mean, it is true that that since the advent of nuclear weapons, the number of people killed in conflict, like compared to the t- the total population of Earth, has decreased drastically since the end of World War II. Even though obviously we still do have conflicts and too many people do die, and so you know some people do attribute that to the existence of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, they stop large scale conflict from breaking out. They may not stop smaller scale or regional conflict, but we haven't had a World War III with huge numbers of casualties, and that is because of nuclear weapons. On the other side of the argument, you know, there's there's no way to prove that that is because of nuclear weapons. And then there's also the, the argument that um, uh, holding yourself at, at constant worldwide peril um, is not a great way to to um, keep the peace, even, it is, even if it has kept the peace so far, and all it would take would be one nuclear weapon for that not to be true anymore we're in all of our days so i might even yes. take my show off the air finally uh, you've written a couple of books your previous books on extraterrestrials they are already here uh, another interesting book um making contact uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence if there is extraterrestrial intelligence what do you think they or it or she would think about nuclear weapons yeah, I mean, I think that the thinking among scientists who are trying to find aliens is that if they exist, um, chances are they're much older than us. And so if they are much older than us, they've they've probably uh, made something like nuclear weapons and then figured out how to not kill each other uh, with it. And so I, I would guess that if they're out there, um, they would probably tell us to, you know, leave that one alone or, or ourselves find a way to uh, to keep to keep the peace without um, such threatening weapons.